All right, Nicholas, we just got back from spring break. You have got to, you've got to be still. Sorry, Simeon. He struggles. He wants to fidget. And your, like, knee is so tense. You're such a tense little monkey. Just chill. <sighs> Some of us don't do this every day. Okay. All right. <laughs> This is Sarah. And this is Nicholas, and you're listening to Pantsuit Politics. Another episode of Pantsuit Politics, where we take a different approach to the news. As you just heard, I'm here with my husband, Nicholas, who is filling in for Beth while she's on spring break. Welcome to the show, babe. Thanks for having me. I'm really delighted to be here. This is my favorite podcast. (laughs) For those of you who are new here and haven't heard our origin story, Pantsuit Politics was Nicholas's idea, or at least... He, I was writing a blog at the time, and he really, really kept insisting I should start a podcast. I don't know if pantsuit politics necessarily was your idea, but the idea that I should start a podcast certainly was. That's true. I did not think that the blog platform captured your dynamic oh, thank you. personality and that you would be you would have a great radio presence, so to speak. And well, you, not you, to brag, but I did get most talkative in high school. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've heard that before. And then, you, of course, you guys took this idea together, and, and it was – it became something I couldn't have imagined. It was oh. yeah, so. Thanks, pal. Today, Nicholas and I are going to tackle some headlines at the top of the show. We're going to move on and do the mirror image of Beth and Chad's conversation and talk about the state of the Democratic Party. And then we're going to close the show talking about our recent vacation to Utah. But before we get to that, y'all, we are two weeks, two weeks out from the launch of our new book, Now What? How to Move Forward When We're Divided About Basically Everything. The book comes out on May 3rd. Nicholas, have you pre-ordered a copy? Um, no, uh, what? but I will what? today. I'll do it today. You better or pre-order um, a copy. But that doesn't mean um, that you shouldn't pre-order a copy. You should definitely pre-order a copy. You should have already pre-ordered a copy. Yeah, for don't sure. Be, don't be like me. Don't be like Nicholas. This book is so precious to us, largely because it's very personal. We share a lot about our personal lives. Nicholas, there is a lot of you in this book. I am terrified. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know the book is dedicated to you? I didn't know that. Yeah, the book is dedicated no. to you and Chad. Oh, that's lovely. Thank yeah, you. You're welcome. You can pre-order now, which is essential to helping fulfill my totally arbitrary dream of becoming a New York Times bestseller. I know the system's rigged. I don't care. I want that before my name everywhere I go. New York Times bestselling author, Sarah Stewart Hall. Doesn't um, it sound nice? It sounds nice. But when you kind of look d- deeper into like what it means, it kind of cheapens what it Just is. Just shut up. But. Shut up. That's not true. <laughs> it still sounds fancy, and that's what matters. What matters is what sounds fancy in life. <laughs> that's our values. Okay. Fair enough. So please pre-order the book. It means the world to us. If you pre-order, you get a link to a live virtual launch party on May 3rd. Or or if you're feeling real adventurous, you can join us in Waco on April 30th. Get the book a few days earlier. See us in person. Hang out with us and Clint Harp. It's going to be a party. It's going to be a party. So the links to all that is in the show notes. We hope you'll join us in Waco. If you can't, we hope you'll pre-order the book. More than one copy. You can pre-order the audiobook now. We're very excited about that. Do I cry on the audiobook? Of course you do. Of course I do. <laughs> of course I do. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. 
Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy? Or a bra that's comfortable. Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Before we get started, I did want to say that we are aware of just the horrific video coming out of Grand Rapids and the killing of Patrick LaHoya. Beth and I will get together and talk about that next week, but I didn't want an episode to go by without saying we saw this terrible news and we're sending all the love that we can to his family and to the the people of Grand Rapids and the community there as they deal with this. So the top news of the week, I would say, was the shooting in the subway in New York City. We talked about a little bit on the Good News Brief yesterday, um, which you joined me for, which was fun. Because there does seem to be, and it's not good news, but there's definitely like a lot of silver linings to this particular incident. It was scary. It was chaotic. It plays on everybody's worst fears about the subway. But while there were many people injured, no one has died or is expected to die from their injuries. The shooter is in custody. So it could have been... While it's awful, it could have been much worse. Right. They did capture him yesterday, I think, late last night. He actually called in the tip line himself, um, and then he was captured, uh, I think, a few hours later um, by the the New York police. I think it's just, you know, as the subway is trying to come back from COVID, which was not exactly a pleasant place to be when there's an airborne virus, there's also been a couple of people pushed in front of cars and killed. Um, I just think this was like the last thing 
mass transit needed as it's trying to come back? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I mean, anybody who's ridden the subways in New York knows it's a little bit of a claustrophobic experience anyway. Mm. And for somebody who has a little bit of claustrophobia, I'd say, doesn't love crowds and being packed in places, um, it definitely gives off a, um, a negative Another negative thing with COVID and and this just makes it seem less likely that it's going to bounce back to where it was. Um, but people have said it before, and I think they'll say it again a lot, that New Yorkers are resilient people. Mm-hmm. They are the best of us. As, uh, and many ways, um, yes. I think we can we'll, – we'll see them weather this, and hopefully um, we'll see increased safety measures in the subways and more um, awareness. And, of course, hopefully this shooter who seems to um, – have some history of mental illness and some interaction with the mental illness um, treatments in New York will get the help that he needs and mm-hmm. will um, move forward from this. The other, I think, big story was the economy, inflation, with the side of Elon Musk, which Leslie and I talked about on Tuesday. But inflation is high. I was reading a lot of articles yesterday about how it's even hitting the grocery store where people try to save money by cooking at home. You are the designated grocery shopper for the Holland family. What are you noticing out there in the aisles? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think the things that you start noticing sort of here and there, oh, that seems higher and that seems higher. And then and you see everything seems higher. <laughs> uh, you know, yesterday I went and got something that's usually two ninety nine, and it was three ninety nine, And I went, oh, that's strange. And it was like a generic Gro- Kroger brand grocery store product that we buy a lot of. And it was a dollar higher than it had been, you know, almost 25% higher than it had been. And so I don't know if that's transitory or if that's here to stay. Um, but definitely inflation is on everybody's mind. It's a big story. It's something we'll talk about in the next segment, I think, mm-hmm. uh, how much that's, that story is the, the is the one that's affecting the Democratic Party. Well, so much so the White House seems to be taking a different approach. Like I talked about this on the news brief. It feels like it's reverse psychology. Like they went from it's transitory, it's transitory. This time they were like, y'all, it's going to be so bad. It's going to be the worst, guys. Get ready. Yeah. I think everybody has abandoned the it's transitory in terms of yeah, it's going to sure. go away. It's going to slow down because of the supply chain issues being relieved and things like that. But definitely the messaging was different, which was we all know it's going to be bad. Be prepared for it to be bad. And so the markets built it in a little bit before it even was announced. And it was it was right in line with kind of where everybody thought it was going to be. And so, you know, to the extent that the markets tell us anything, um, it was sort of a non not news, so to speak, that it was high. Well, and everybody thinks the Fed should be acting faster and raising interest rates. You, like I said, you work in real estate. Are you noticing anything at your closings? Like, are, you said yesterday you felt like this year is going to be a weird year for real estate. Well, I think that absolutely you see the impact on interest rates. I mean, you see, you know, when in mid-pandemic, you saw sort of your 30-year un, unheard of interest rates for a 30-year refinance, like below 3%. We refinanced. Um, and now you're seeing that come back to sort of reality, which is still low historically, but it feels high to people. Mm. It feels people have this – it's very psychological. Right. What we but always you know, talk about with the economy. When we first bought a home in D.C., you know, we had – I think it was a 7% rate or a 7.5% rate. And now to get a 7.5% rate, would people would – it's almost unthinkable. People would balk at it immediately. But I think we're coming back to that reality here in the next couple of years. Um, you definitely see – those rates creeping up into the fours and the fives, sort of ahead of even what the Fed is doing. Because, of course, the banks have to build in a little bit of, you know, hedge at the Mm. end of the day against the reality that probably will rise. Of course, you're not seeing that 
on the same side on the savings accounts. So your Word. savings accounts are not increasing in their interest rates at the same rate. But that's capitalism, I guess, for you. I felt the impact sort of emotionally, especially because we're paying our tax bill and there's all this talk about inflation and it's an, like unavoidable. The prices are up everywhere. And you just start to feel that scarcity like fear creep into your thinking. And it's just, it's unavoidable. I think, you know, how no matter how many savings you have or how stable your job is or whatever it is, and it just gives me so much empathy for people who have even less stability, even less um, sort of cushion than we do. Because if it's affecting me and I'm feeling it and it's stressing me out, I cannot imagine um, how people sort of on the lower end of the economic spectrum are suffering under this. It's just so stressful if you don't, if you're living paycheck to paycheck right now and you're really on the line as far as what you can afford and the prices keep going up and you're everywhere, everything you see is inflation, economy, inflation, economy. It's so stressful. Yeah, and it's just, it's cyclical. It feeds itself. Yeah. Um, so, you know, concerns about inflation feed inflation. Um, I think there's been a lot of speculation and maybe even some evidence of businesses sort of taking advantage of price, mm. the expectation that prices will increase just to increase prices, Yeah. Um, which the Biden administration is making efforts to try to push back on, but there's only so much that they can do in a free market. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in the next segment for sure. Now, Leslie and I talked about Elon, but now he's. it looks like he's trying to do some sort of takeover of Twitter. Do you want to talk about Elon? How do you feel about Elon? I don't really know how you feel about him as a person. Um, I He confuses me. I don't really know a lot about Elon. Too. Um, I'll be honest with you. I have not studied Elon. We own one of Elon's cars. We love it. Elon has cle- is clearly has a vision for certain things. Yeah. Um, I think that it's... It's incredible what he's done with Tesla. It's incredible with what he's done with SpaceX. Those two things. To imagine that there's one guy was like, we're going to do these two things and to drive that as sort of the visionary of it. Um, I wonder if maybe with this Twitter thing, and just so everyone knows the news, like he he bought his 9.2% stake, mm-hmm. uh, which he again appears to have violated SEC rules when he did. Word. Made $100 million in the violation. He of has rules. now made a filing with the SEC saying that he has made an, an offering, a takeover offering to purchase Twitter, to buy the whole thing. I feel a little um, bit like I'm living in an episode of Succession. At a share premium. Yeah. So I think the shares were trading around 45 or $46 at close yesterday. And the Tesla offered, shares were down. He's offered 52 40 And on this news, Tesla shares uh-huh. went down. And I, I was actually thinking about this a little earlier because it reminds me, and some of you may have this experience, there are maybe people in your community who are considered like experts in their field, like yeah. the best cardiac surgeon or the best right. accountant or the best lawyer at, at XYZ. Okay. And then they decide to like open a restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> or they decide to, to like open an, an amusement uh, facility, you know, like an arcade yeah. or something. Yeah. And everybody's you, like, what? everybody's like, well, that's interesting. And like, you really want to think like, well, they're, they're good at something. They're clearly smart. They clearly have yeah. a good head on their shoulders. They've clearly got some capital. They, they ought to go out and do that and, and see what happens. And, and so frequently, it doesn't last that long. <laughs> so or or they sell it to somebody or the next thing yeah. happens. So I'm, I'm wondering if maybe Elon has sort of bought his own press. Bless. Because d- being a visionary in aeronautics and car manufacturing is one thing, but you have thousands on thousands on thousands of people who actually know what they're doing in those spaces. Yeah. And I'm not sure anybody really knows what Twitter could be, can be, ought to be. There's not a subject matter experts who can be like, well, this is how we build a rocket, just like for Twitter, right? So 
Yeah. It's he the, has his own view of like what Twitter could be, which I'm a little concerned is too close to what Peter Thiel thinks Facebook should be, oh. which is like just open it up. Trump can come back on. Everybody no, come back on. We'll just boo. pile back in and we'll be a free speech market. Ooh, I'll be so mad at Elon if he platforms I, Trump again. I don't think of that. I don't think that's a bad that's a bad route. It reminds me because uh, I, I was sitting here thinking, boy, I wonder what Jack thinks about this, Jack Dorsey. And then it sort of opened up this space, this conversation I think I heard on Ezra Klein's podcast with, oh, with the guy about cryptocurrency. And they were talking about how all these Web 2.0 people are out there in crypto now. And the conversation was like, why? Why? Don't you have enough money? But it's like, it was the YouTube guy was like, well, they just want to build piles like how big can I get the pile basically like what what's the point otherwise right like what are you what are you doing are you trying to make something better are you just because crypto in particular like to get the mountains and mountains of money that they consider successful you have to get it on the ground floor right like that's and you you get on the ground floor 400 things two things hit and you make just Mount Everest piles of money um, well, yeah, money, right. I mean, right. You make, so true. You make digital money, right? right? I mean, it's it seems very— But it's just so interesting to me, and that's kind of like—that's sort of what I'm thinking about, Elon. Like, but but why? Like, what's the point of this? Why don't you—if you, you want to be a visionary, you know what visionary I'm interested in right now? Mackenzie Scott. That's the visionary I want to see. I want to see who can give it away the fastest, right? Like, not manipulate it into new realms of power or new realms of wealth. Like, let's see—like, that's— that's the visionary action I'm looking for right now. How are we improving other people's lives right. by buying Twitter and making it more open or letting people buy a checkmark or whatever it is he's proposed, which right. is all sort of all over the map. And it also makes me wonder why he did what he did when he bought this large stake in the company um, because he's, he didn't take a seat on the board. And now he's saying publicly like a week later, well, I don't really feel like I can do enough just in the open you know, uh, public market. I only want to be the Elon Musk enough. of Twitter. Like I don't right. want to be I want one to be of the many. big boss of Twitter. I don't right. want to be I don't right. want to be just a big shareholder who has a lot of say in what the board does or who the, who's on the board. Which is weird. I mean, it's, he's not he's not your Carl Icahn. He's not your, you know, he's not a that kind of investor it wouldn't appear or he doesn't want to be even though he could be and and those guys wield a lot of influence when they have mm. large st- stakes in companies and putting people on boards can impact the direction of those companies. But for whatever reason, he doesn't doesn't want to do that. He wants to own it or doesn't want a part of it at all. And I, it's sort of a share manipulation too, because something he said today was suggested like, well, if I can't own it, I'm I'm out. Ugh. Right. So that's again, we're we're talking about some very kind of unfortunate and Sketchy. maybe not entirely in in the spirit of the law efforts uh, on his part with the shares. God bless the SEC and their work with this. All right. Next up, Nicholas and I are going to tackle the Democratic Party. We're going to fix it, I think. I feel good about it. (laughs) If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box. Salon grade tools. Your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors, and I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. 
The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second-chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsy. All right, we went through a couple of topic ideas before we settled on this. We were going to talk about your crush on Sandy. Do you want to just disclose your biases now? I have, um, I do like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Or Sandy, as she's known to her friends and family and Nicholas. I think she's a very interesting um, political figure. I think the brand that she's built, I think that the platform she's built for herself is is in such a short time. And I think that, I love that the, the Republicans all seem to be afraid of her. I think she's, you know, kind of, been a really great face for that wing of the party. And if you really watch her public engagement, you know, it's very – she's very much still on the ground with her community, with her constituents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she does this stuff, but it's not really a huge part of what the work that she does every day. She's still out there doing, you know, being at union meetings and being at, at protests and that kind of stuff. I just find her very – You love um, her. I, I, I mean, you characterize it as I love her. <laughs> I think it's just – I think I, she's, you know um, – 
really captured something, especially in that in that last that 2018, I guess, was what it was election cycle that um, caught on, and she challenged the Democratic establishment, and I think made some good changes. And I think you know what you see today. I mean, Joe Biden's politics were driven very much now by to this progressive left. wing of the party, For sure. and I don't think you would have seen that without AOC and and the people that she. The other people who are the in squad. the quote-unquote squad, which I don't really like anyway. but You don't um, like the name. It's not that you don't like the people. Well, I don't like the implication that, like, it's wrong for them to somehow have a, a cohort of people. I mean, it's always been the case right. that, that there have been factions of the party. There's the blue dog. I mean, nobody talks about the blue dog Democrats in the same – well, it's not nobody. But it, they don't have that same sort of negative connotation of, like, this is somehow just a clique. Um, they're people who share a common interest and common goals. What's that? I just try – I mean – we're not going to spend the whole time with Sandy, but it is strangely relevant because you are probably more progressive than I am. Do you think am. that's fair? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so we were going to talk about this sort of debate as we're coming up on the midterms. It seems to just be decided that the Democrats are going to take a take a beating in November. I am, you know, even though I am more moderate, I am very optimistic. And so I'm never... I don't ever just sort of accept, oh, we're going to lose everything. You're more pessimistic. It's funny. You're more progressive, but you're more pessimistic when it comes to electoral politics. Maybe that's not funny. Maybe that's probably related. I think the Democrats will lose seats, period, full stop. I don't think there's any there's any way they hold them. Well, it's historical. It's, it's usually the, the first-term incumbent president loses seats in the midterm. So right. that's not— There's a lot of systemic reasons that that is the case. There's a lot of— But, like, what are they? Why does that happen every time? Dissatisfaction. People get dissatisfied. People are dissatisfied almost all the time. Is it just a come down (laughs) from the promises of the election? Like, it's just a a knee-jerk reaction to you promise the world. When I was thinking about it, I'm like, what if people are just kind of, like, they just hate the presidential campaign season so much that they just, (laughs) like, they're just so mad. Like, it promises the world. It never delivers. Life goes on. Everything's not fixed. And they just, they're just mad come midterm. I was trying to think about why. Why historically does this happen every time? Uh, yeah, I don't. I mean, I guess there's lots of political scientists out there who could probably try to help you understand that. I, I mean, I think there is some some of what you said, which is there's a dissatisfaction with the party in power because not everything is peachy keen. Mm-hmm. There's um, maybe a sense that that party, in some cases, that the party has gone too far. I think that was some some of the case in the 2022. Or sorry, not 2022. That's 2022 is now 2018 election was a sense that Trump had gone kind of gotten over his handlebars. There was too much going on. They didn't like the tone. So I think, you know, it's just a, it's kind of just, I think the American electorate likes to kind of sway in the wind as far as if everything's not going perfectly well, if we, let's try the other guys or let's see if a divided government won't won't work a little bit better or, but I think the Democrats, the last two, two times that this has been a major issue, which would have been in 2000 and the first time that Obama was 2010, right? After the ACA, and now this time, it, it seems to be sort of the same symptoms, or maybe the same causes, which is a sense that they're too focused on an issue that doesn't isn't bread and butter enough for a lot of people, you know, or they're too focused on the on procedural stuff, and they're not really a united sure united front, and there's all this kind of political ugliness, and they just kind of don't like that. They shut it off. So just to say, like, with the ACA, obviously important to a lot of people, but, you know, they had to do that through, they had to do it through reconciliation. There was a lot of storm and drang about, are we going to do this? Are we going to do that? You know, early on it was, we're going to do a single payer. That didn't pan out. So then we ended up with this sort of mishmash. There was lawsuits. There was all this other stuff that kind of came out. And I think there was a sense that 
you but know. I feel like the Biden administration really tried to not fall into the trap of the ACA and has delivered. I don't think, you know, I know there's a lot of eye rolling and Nancy Pelosi saying, like, stand on our record. We need to point to our record. But I don't think that's wrong just on paper. They have right. delivered a lot of things. They, they finally delivered Infrastructure Week, if nothing else. Like, we have this, <laughs> this generational investment in infrastructure. We have continued COVID investment. I know people would like this last round to go through, but there was, a, I mean, just a massive amount of money poured into investing in testing and investing in the vaccine distribution. We have just historic job growth. I mean, now I know that that is the sort of flip side of inflation, which we're going to get to the part of the record that's more difficult. But, I mean, the job market is hot, it's right? It's very good. The unemployment yeah. is like the lowest it's been since like something like 1960 or something bananas. And I do think the the criticism of the press that like they talk about inflation constantly, but they don't ever talk about how good the job market is, is, is probably fair. Um, I think – the way the Biden administration has handled the invasion of Ukraine has been stellar. Like, now that doesn't necessarily have to do with congressional seats, but it's not unrelated. Congress is passing funding for the Ukrainians as well. So I think the idea that standing on their record is silly is not fair. There is a lot of good record there. I just don't know if that's what connects in congressional races, unfortunately. I think like holding up this list of bills is not what connects with people. Yeah, I think I guess I would say two things. One, something interesting that I read a lot of places, which is Democrats, when they talk about their record in this last couple of years, they start talking about dollars. Yeah. They and say if, it's been $1.5 trillion. We spent duh, 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 however much, right? Yeah. And people just go, well, that's just spending. Right. right? They don't And if they're worried that. about inflation, they're going to say, well, right. that's why we have inflation is because right. there's been too much government spending. And they don't relate that to actual potholes being filled, so to speak, or right. bridges being built. And and there is a lot of that going on. But, you know, one interesting thing that I'll just speak from my own experience is, you know, I, I don't know, about a month or two months ago, I got a request for proposal uh, from the State Department of Highways to do legal work, you know, provide rates and everything to do legal work on the Brett Spence bridge. Like, I received that because I receive all of them. I'm not in Western Kentucky. I'm not going to do legal title work for the Brent Spence Bridge in Northern Kentucky. But it, it's interesting because that's how you start work when you start doing a bridge. You start talking about well, what do we need to acquire as the government? What do we need to condemn? Um, you know, to build this bridge, and what legal work do we need to do? And that takes time. That takes months and months. You know, it takes a couple months just to do the, the RFPs, and then you do the work, and then they actually go out and they purchase the property, or they have to go into litigation. So, I mean, people aren't going to see that money on the ground for a while. And and what has been top of news is, unfortunately, how are the Democrats not getting along? Uh-huh. Right. And we can all talk about whose fault is that? Is it the progressives fault because they wanted to hold up one bill for the other? Is it the moderates fault because they didn't really keep their end of the bargain, so to speak? I think, a lot. you know, we heard so much about Joe Manchin. We heard so much about Kristen Cinema, And we didn't hear enough about we did this good thing. Look, we all got together. We did this good thing. And it's going to be good for America. I think they try to push that through. But the the horse race, quote unquote, story was the Democrats can't get this done. The Democrats can't get what they really want done, the big piece of this done. Okay, but here's the thing. Here's what sort of bothers me. I feel like it always turns into, well, they won't cover what we've done, which I don't think is unfair. 
But I also think that there are problematic strategies, messaging coming from the Democratic Party. It's not accurate or realistic to blame every electoral problem the Democrats have on media messaging or even like the sort of unfair and disingenuous messaging of the Republican Party, which I think is there, too. Like, I think that that is true, too. But, you know, here's where I will, if not throw the progressive wing of the party under the bus, at least offer up some, with love in my heart, (laughs) criticism, which is, I think the perception of the Democratic Party, which is fueled by the Republican Party and fueled by media messaging, let me just give that, you know, aside, is also, you know, in some fairness based on progressive messaging around defund the police and, you know, abolish ICE. And I'm not I'm not even mad at them. Like, I think we need people pushing the party to the left. I'm so happy that the progressive wing of the Democratic Party has pushed the president to the left. I think what bothers me is there's never any sort of goodwill given to the moderates who say, okay, well, we also need people saying that's too far for some people. Like, that's a good conversation to have, but that's too far for the majority of Americans. And if you say that, it's like, well, then you get a, you get attacked as, you know, not caring about people or, God forbid, being racist or sexist or whatever, mm-hmm. when... There's no, I feel like, goodwill of, like, there, there, this, is a, this is a conversation. This is a back and forth. You push to the left. I push to the center. We end up where we need to be. And it, it just feels like the moderates are always villainized. Not that, again, progressives aren't villainized. Lord knows AOC is villainized by every which way, right? But it just feels like we also have to acknowledge that, you know, we, I think we got out in front of our skis a little bit. And that we went further than a lot of the American population is willing to go, including growing segments of the Democratic Party, like the Latino coalition, right? Like that they Donald Trump increased his vote share with them. There are some incredibly conservative, socially conservative components of the Latino part of the Democratic coalition. And I just think like, it feels like that gets ignored or sort of pushed aside because it doesn't fit with this narrative we've all agreed on or some of us agreed on. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I would say to that is it's a little bit the same problem that the Republicans have, which is that the base, a big part of the base of the Democratic Party is very progressive, especially in the major cities, especially um, in pockets of the Is Northeast. it a big part of the base or is it just a loud a and powerful part of the base? Part of the base. I that's don't know, my question. But I think that's the same question the Republicans ask. Right. How no, I think is, that's true. How that's big is totally the Trump true. part of the base? Well, it's hard to really gauge it, but it's big enough. Well, and it just even that part of the conversation bugs me. It's like because their base is different than Orville. Like I don't ever want a conversation again comparing like Marjorie Taylor Greene's part of the base to AOC's part of the base because they are so they don't do not deserve to be in the same print piece, much less in the same comparison. Yeah, but that isn't that driven by some by just your own politics and your own your own. No. Knowledge base. Absolutely I mean, not. I, okay, fair enough. But I, I think that to go back to what you said, which is there's bad messaging or there's messaging that breaks through. Um, there has been, I think, and I don't disagree with you, too much of a focus on trying to find a soundbite 
or a three-word phrase or whatever it is that works and breaks through for the Democrats. And so things like defund the police, which are much more nuanced than just defund the police. You know, obviously Biden in his in his uh, State of the Union address said, don't defund the yeah, police, right, fund right, the right. police. But he was trying to say, fund them in different ways. Fund them in ways that aren't just about enforcement. Fund them in ways that are more about community building. Fund them in ways that are about uh, mental health engagement. Things like that, where, you know, when you just hear defund the police, it's just so easy to twist that to, they don't want to patrol people to patrol streets. They want, you know, anarchy. They want whatever it is. And that's obviously not the case, but you can't explain that. Once you've put that into the air, it's yours. You have to own it. And so if you can't explain it, you know, it doesn't explain what it is. You know, right. it, it, it explains something different, I think, to most people. And so it's the same with abolish ICE. I mean, obviously, ICE is a new agency, relatively new agency. And so I think the abolition of ICE is one thing. But, you know, what people really want is change immigration policy. You know, we're too too engaged with enforcement and not engaged with, you know, and with the real effects of what that enforcement has caused, which is labor shortages and, mm-hmm. and a lot of different things. So I, I agree with you. I think the messaging has been bad. I think the messaging that's broken through can be damaging, has been damaging. But I think that the the reaction to that from the moderate side of the party has been, well, let's just moderate everything. Let's just talk about, let's just all come to the middle and talk about things in the middle. And I don't know that that really is going to win you elections. It's certainly not going to fire up people in the primaries. Well, and, it just depends on where you are. It's going to win you elections in some places. And that's true. And I think that that's what you touch on is that there are definitely a lot of people who gave us the majority in 2018, who now feel like mm-hmm. they've been thrown under the bus or they've been abandoned. And Stephanie Murphy, mm-hmm. I think, in Florida, she's not running again. She was one of the ones who came in 2018. She is not running again. And she has basically said, it's because I feel like I've been abandoned by the the party platform and the party leadership who seem to be okay with primarying people who have won congressional districts yep. with more progressive candidates. And... Um, not understanding that people like me, and she actually called out Abigail Spanberger, who won by saying, we're going to be in the middle. We're going to take votes that we're, the parties, the Democratic Party is not always going to agree on. And then we go and we actually do what we say, and people get mad at us. Yeah. <laughs> so the Democratic Party is, I mean, it, it's, it's a big, big, big tent. And that is part of its strength, uh, strength and part of its problem. Right. Um, and until they can get their arms around what are they going to – how much leeway are they going to give people to be different from the expectation of the party leadership? Well, and I think Nancy Pelosi gives them a lot of leeway. I think I, she does a good job of protecting moderates, although it's – I mean, maybe Stephanie Murphy would have, feel something different. But I think historically you see that. And look, here's the thing. You know, if I'm painting with the broadest of broad brushes, I feel like if you are sort of all the way on the right – on the Republican Party and you're being fueled by your base, it's like you can't you can't do anything different because they're terrible. And if you're on the Democratic base, I think there's a, a little bit of probably more than a little bit of they're terrible. But there's also like, but we're on the side of right. And so you can't criticize the progressive left or if you're not on the side of right. You don't care about poor people. You don't care about immigrants. Uh, you don't care about people of color. That's sort of the pushback. And to me, I don't feel like there's an honest conversation. And I think this is what we get into with, like, what you see with Donald Trump expanding his vote share. Like, look, I understand I'm more radical on immigration than most of Americans. Like, 
open borders don't bother me. <laughs> I get that that is a radical position. But I don't feel like there's an honest conversation among progressives, especially like people with those sort of who really want to overhaul immigration and have like a really radical, different, radically different approach to immigration to say like, please understand that ex- that will change the politics of our country. Not everybody who's going to come from Mexico or Honduras is going to be a Democrat, like is going to be even progressive. Many of those people will be very conservative on abortion, even on immigration policy. And I just feel like that's like the thing that you can't say out loud or is sort of ignored or just like pretended like that's not going to be an issue to our detriment. Like, I I think like there's a sense of, especially in the progressive caucus, that like if it's the right thing to do, like if you're a good person, this is what you this is what you want. And if you ask about sort of the electoral consequences of that or the electoral strategy surrounding that, like you, it's just, well, no, it'll work. It's it's electoral. It's in a winner electorally. Well, maybe where you live, but not everywhere and definitely not in a presidential race. Like we've talked about this on Pansy Politics. We're more radical on criminal justice. We're more radical on reproductive rights. We're more radical on immigration than the majority of Americans. And I just feel like that that's where the moderates, I think, get frustrated is like, are we talking about where we should be? Or are we talking about where people are? Because I think that's a conversation that often is missing within like sort of the democratic conversation that that bridge how do we that difference between where we want people to be and where they actually are and are we trying to convince them are we trying to just you know push and hope they catch up like i feel like that's that's mm-hmm. where that's what gets missed so often well and i think that you're seeing that tension in a couple of different places right now with the biden administration so Right now, they're talking about ending Title 42, mm. um, which is which is a policy that if, if I think if you ask the, the loudest critic of that policy, they would say it was a policy that was bad immigration policy cloaked as public health policy. Right. So it was COVID will enter the borders through immigration. And so we're going to close the border because COVID. And now the, the Biden administration is talking about ending it. And so you have a tension there. You have lots of Democrats who are like Mark Kelly, who is very progressive on most issues, saying, this is really bad for me electorally. Yeah. This is really bad for me. Please don't do this. This this seems hasty. Yeah, it was bad policy, but it's worse electorally, politically to end it now. And in particular, but you're going to have progressives that say, "Oh, come on!" But gr- what Governor Abbott's doing is way worse, like right, with, but, the, with the with right. the with the Mexican trucks and the uh, right. But I think what you see, some of what you see, is is COVID politics, which is the Department of Transportation extended the mask mandate on uh, air flights, on mm. airplanes, and in airports, which I'm all in favor of. I think we should just do it forever. No, we but, don't have to fly to Europe, <laughs> and I do not want to wear a mask. The Everybody whole time. can wear a mask on a plane, and that'd be fine. I don't want to breathe your air. But <laughs> but people are saying like, but you are more radical right, than most Americans sure, on that, right? But sure, if COVID is over for immigration, why isn't COVID over for us on these airplanes? Right? That's kind of there's that tension, and I think you see that in the energy sector too, where you have Biden is announcing, you know, we're going to allow people to have. E85, higher ethanol gas, gasoline during the summer uh-huh. months, which has typically been an environmental issue and is getting pushback from progressives like this is a bad idea. 
and the messaging is wrong because the messaging should be gas is expensive because we haven't moved more quickly to renewables. And that's really should be the messaging where instead the messaging is gas is high. We're going to do everything we can to get it down and make every and make this as easy as you can on. But again, that's where do we want where people are or do we want where people should be? That's what's so hard. And that's and that is the that is the tension. But you can't get people to where you want them to be if you lose all the time. Right. right? Right. I think that's where I'm as that's where my moderate streak comes out is. You can't get people anywhere if you're in the minority all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's so hard. And I mean, look, we're not breaking any new ground here. I know this is what they fight about at those retreats. I know this is on every Democrat's mind. And the truth is, you and I have both been Democrats to know we're never going to be in lockstep like Republicans. That's not who we are. (laughs) That's not who we have ever been. Um, And that's okay. I doesn't, you know, that's I, I prefer that to the other way. I would. Absolutely always rather sort of be mad at each other and fighting and mouthing off to the press than to have censures and kicking people out of the party and sort of the the approach, the sort of rhino approach of the right right now. Oh, absolutely. I think that I don't think there's any call for blood on any of these people. No. I think I think even AOC would admit. I love her. I, I, I love Sandy. I, I understand Sandy. Joe Manchin. I don't like Joe Manchin. I don't like where he's at with this. I think he's wrong. I think that he underestimates the wisdom of the voters in West Virginia if he was to do this thing and it was actually to see the result. But I understand his calculus. Yeah, but I don't talk. I'm um, not going to. I'm not trying to lecture Joe Manchin on underestimating the wisdom of the West Virginia vote. He knows him better than you and uh, I do. For sure. But that's what I'm saying. I, I think ultimately where, where I come out is if we want to stay in the majority and we want to get good things done, don't let the enemy of... Don't be perfect. Be the enemy, enemy of good. good. Now you sound like a moderate there, not a progressive. Well, you know, you sometimes you have to to, <laughs> to do that. You did live in Georgia, so there is that. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, where I grew up, it was a, the bluest piece of the state, uh, and still is. I mean, I grew up just for everybody who doesn't know in DeKalb County, Georgia, which was you know got a lot of press when Warnock uh, and what's the fellow's name down there. John Ossoff. Don Ossoff. Sorry, he was he ran for everything. I recite them. One, you know, that's a that's a big county that gave Joe Biden that put Joe Biden over the top in Georgia as well. Um, and so it's been interesting growing up there. It was a very very liberal enclave, and it continues to be a very very liberal place. Probably more liberal than it was when I was growing up yeah, there. Yeah, for sure. Also more affluent than it was when I was mm. growing up there. So um, I've lived in a place where you know my politics aren't really necessarily the surrounding areas politics. You know, North Georgia, Southern Georgia, those places were very red and have been for ages. So uh, maybe it's informed by the fact that I know you can't get everything done just by being the raging progressive liberal, but it sure would be nice if you could. <laughs> it doesn't stop you from being real mad mm-hmm. a lot of times. It does. I get mad. You get sure. so mad. You were so mad about the story in the New York Times about the Republicans who killed naming the courthouse after the mm-hmm. black judge because he one time put down a legally sound argument about prayer in schools, I believe, was the issue. And it was a Georgia congressman that stopped it all. Yeah, I don't remember all the details of that story because my eyes started going a little bit. You were getting a little red? A little red. A little hot? The story was basically that, you know, this was a a lot of people supported this yeah, it was, This fairly It's like the one thing bill. they do all the time is name things without They were going to name this debate. after the first I mean, African-American Supreme Court justice uh, in Florida. In Florida. They were going to name the courthouse after him. And one Republican congressman found— a, From Georgia. Wasn't even from Florida. Found an item in the news from sometime in the late 90s, I think, about how he upheld a, 
a ruling that prayer in schools was inappropriate, which is not terribly... And I just want to say, like, why were you looking for that, sir? Why, why, were, I, you... why no. was he looking for it? Yeah, right? Like, what, what, what out of everything of this man's biography could have possibly triggered your search mm-hmm. through his media clippings. Do you do that for every time they name something? Because you wouldn't do anything else if that's true. Yeah, it was it was very so it's a very racist. strange and then it just became like a like a self-imposed litmus test. If you read the article, it's almost like people who voted against it didn't know that why they were voting they against it. They just knew Republicans it. It were voting lockstep. against it. Lockstep. So gross. You know, one of the one of the sponsors of the bill said, "I had no. It was so confusing. I didn't know what was going on, because she thought it was going to be, you know, like, you know, it had bipartisan four hundred thirty-five yeah. to zero, and it ended up being being ended up failing um, ultimately. So, um, and I don't think you see a moment like that in the Democratic Party. I don't know. I mean, I think it, it just depends. But again, I, I think there's a lot of unfortunate things going on. We don't trust each other party. enough to do that. <laughs> the, the Republican Party has its own issues. And, and I, you know, we've had a lot of conversations about the Republican Party, such as it is. And I think you have maybe a little bit more sense that the more moderate wings of the Republican Party act in good faith more than maybe I think they do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that the moderate wing of the Republican Party takes cover from it's not even the honor radical. Wing. There's just a few moderate party. senators who I will defend. I, I don't know if there is the moderate wing of the House. I don't see it. So right, and I think one, sure well, one of the things that we talked about, just so everybody has a little color on this, is that you know there was a lot of during the confirmation hearing, most recent confirmation hearing of of uh, soon to be Justice Jackson. Um, she was questioned a lot about her rulings on or her sentencing in uh, child pornography cases. And, um, you know, when Romney and Collins and Murkowski voted in favor of her confirmation, Marjorie Taylor Greene put out this terrible tweet that said they're basically pedo lovers or something along those yeah. lines. It was, it was pretty— See, aforementioned thing where I said, do not ever compare Marjorie Taylor Greene to AOC. Right. But at the same time, you know, and then the Republicans all came out and they were all aghast that she would say this. And, you know, that's just that that's not where we're at and that's not who we are kind of thing. And I kind of wanted to look at all of them and go, but you guys started this. Right. You know she talks like that. You knew this with all this stuff about— It's fine when she's accusing Democrats about this judge this. was in bad faith. You know it was all theater. You know that Marjorie Taylor Greene's staff didn't go out and find all these rulings. She doesn't right. probably even have the staff to do it. So it was somebody else's large staff. Well, let's go find dirt. It was Josh Let's Hawley, make a big you know. stink on it. And then when she does what she naturally does, which is Escalate. take it that next step— you all act like, oh, my goodness. And to me, it just seems craven. Yeah. And like, Thanks. oh, they act all surprised. But they, they quote, unquote, you know, I hate to sound too much like the playground bully, but he started it. Right. <laughs> like, y'all started this. Yeah. And so now it goes it goes so far, you kind of have to own it. And it seems like they try not to own it or understand that this is there. Well, and it was fascinating to me that, like, the Madison Cawthorn controversy was like, they finally got mad at somebody because this dude who they know who is – young and ridiculous and extreme said, I staff up with communications, not legislative staff. And the thing you finally got mad at is he accused that he said something about all of you. Now, he talks this way about Democrats all the time that they he says, you know, that they want to destroy the country, that they're all socialists, like all these ridiculous things. But he implies that you guys do to coke and orgies and then let's shut it all down. Like, mm-hmm. I love that it finally came back and hit you a little bit and then you got mad. But that you know how he operates. It's not a secret. Yeah. He broadcasts it everywhere that this is the way he talks and the way he acts. 
Sure. And I, let's not go too much down the, the rabbit hole of the Republican Party because that's not really what we're supposed to be talking about here. But I, I encourage you all to look, look up a recent clip. Ugh. I can't remember the fellow's name. Jonathan Swan. Jonathan Swan, who we, we love. Beth loves him. Because he does he, – he asks the hard questions. He's he very had prepared, an interview, yeah. a live interview, face-to-face interview with Mitch McConnell and asked Mitch McConnell some uncomfortable questions about how do you – how do you justify you the, yeah. the way – you know, how would you say on January 6th, you know, Trump tried to overthrow the government and then two weeks later say if he was a Republican nominee, you would vote for him mm-hmm. and you would support him. And and it's a very uncomfortable situation and McConnell really avoids the question. He does – Jonathan Swan did the best job I've ever seen of somebody holding Mitch McConnell to account who is also very prepared and always like just – he's – he just has no – problem saying, I'm not going to answer that, no. Like, he just has no scruples when it comes to interviews. But Jonathan Swan was prepared in a way for that, and it, which everybody should be. It's not like it's a secret that this is how he responds in interviews. But I thought Jonathan Swan did the best, like, was the best prepared and really just kept sticking it to it and sticking it into it and sticking it to it. Right. And that's a different question for – or a different, different conversation for a different day. Sure. Should we let people get away with this as much as we seem to let people get away with this, which is to do things that seem – contradictory and even to some degree craven and just look the other way and go, well, that's just the way that it's always been done. And mm. that's 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 Mitch, you know. Mm-hmm. So so we got way off topic there a little bit. But but um, Democrats, Democrats and Republicans have, I think, similar problems. I think the Republicans problems are probably. I see. I disagree. I do not think we have similar problems. OK, well, we can agree to disagree. Oh, we hate that phrase of pansy politics. You're not going to get invited back. You keep that up. Um, no, I don't think it's the same. I think what the Republican Party and the way they handle dissension is why their party is in such a terrible state right now. And our party, we might take a schlacking in the midterms, but I don't look at the Democratic Party and think, oh, my gosh, we're just in ter- we're in a terrible state. We're where we always are, which is fighting, <laughs> disagreeing. But that's what we advocate here on Pansy Politics, right, is that there should always be conversation. There should be give and take. We don't bury our disagreements. We don't silence dissent. We, you know, work it out. And it might not always be the best electoral strategy, for sure. And arguably that is what a party is supposed to do is win elections. But I'm still, like, I'm still proud to be a Democrat. Absolutely. Sure. And I'm still hopeful about Democrats. And I think, you know, I think that some of this, too, is just generational. Yeah. And they, they I mean, it's like your mama. It's my mama since I was 18. I can talk about it. Nobody else can, but I can. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we're perfect, but it's, I'm definitely still happy to be a member of the Democratic Party. So official policy is we're not perfect, but we're better than the other guy. <laughs> well, that is usually the policy in a political party. <laughs> Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. 
Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Nicholas, we just returned from spring break. We did. We went to Utah. We went to Utah. We The last time we did this, I guess it was spring break. Right? Yeah. And Have we just gotten we back? We just gotten back from the Everglades. and, and We talked the about keys. the parks for the main segment. And that was show. right. Yes. Because we are park people. We are attempting to visit every national park before we retire. We're making really good progress. We've been through like 13 in the last year. We have... We have... I think picked a lot of the low hanging fruit in terms it's of true. geographically. We, oh, I think we should adjacent. just basically move to Alaska for a month because you can only drive to like two of the six in Alaska, and you just take planes. So that's that's the big that's the Mount Everest of the situation. But right now we went through Utah. You can see five national parks in the state of Utah: Arches, Canyonlands, Capitol Reef, Bryce Canyon, and Zion. We saw them all in a week. And with really not that much driving, the driving was not it bad. It was ten-ish days, right? I mean, it was it was a week plus. Yeah, that's but, true. Because we left on um, Thursday. No, we left on left Friday, Friday and got, got back Saturday. Saturday. So um, we did about a day and a half in each park, 
And they really are geographically not that far away. Arches and Canyonlands are literally 30 minutes away. Yeah. I think it's another – memory serves another three hours drive to Capitol Reef, couple – two and a half hours down to Bryce Canyon. Bryce Canyon designs about an hour and a half, two hours. So – we didn't do a ton of driving. The last trip we did to national parks, we did a lot more driving. Um, yeah. And we're going to talk about some of the choices we made on this trip just so Nicholas can bring up his ham radio, which is what he wanted to talk about outside <laughs> politics. And I said, no, y'all are welcome. <laughs> don't think, I didn't have a ham radio. I had one, but I wasn't using it. But one of the things that you will find in a lot of these parks, which isn't surprising after you've been to a couple of them, is that the cell service is not great. pitiful. I mean, Utah has so many things. Reliable cell service, not one of them. Or non-existent. And we were traveling with Sarah's parents. They were traveling in a separate car from us, which was a, a lifesaver uh, sometimes. It was very helpful to split up groups, to... to he means set up siblings, so they were fighting. Lower the sibling rivalry <laughs> during longer stretches of the trip. And we had a couple of what are called GMRS or FRS radios, which is um, commonly known as walkie-talkies. Commonly known as walkie-talkies, but work. some of them are required to have a license for, you know, do your own research. Oh, my gosh. But um, they were very, very, very helpful, I think. I mean, at the end of Many the Many times I heard, aren't you glad I brought these walkie-talkies? I like some credit, as do you. I do. So I like credit. Everybody likes a little credit. And the walkie-talkies were helpful because when we didn't have cell service and couldn't text each other, we had – you know, a walkie-talkie to say, hey, we're going to pull over here. We, you know, we need, we're, people are hungry. Are you guys hungry? Do you need a rest stop? Just to have that immediate and not have to, you know, are they going to pick up? Are they not going to pick up? Was nice. And I think, you know, in the future, we'll probably even have them when we expect cell service to be decent if we're traveling caravan style. Um, Let's go to the important part where I get credit for planning this amazing Yeah, you do an incredible job of planning these, these, these things. And so just so you know, understand sort of the separation of the planning. Sarah does yeah. all the hard work. True. And then she says, what hikes do we need to yeah, do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's accurate. <laughs> so Sarah finds the hotels. She does the reservations. She um, does flights. She does. She finds the flights. Most of the restaurants. Books, most of the restaurants. That kind of stuff. She crowdsources from you guys. Yeah, it's amazing. Lots of helpful. This is, I'm supposed to be getting, let me, I want to talk about my process. Right. So go ahead. So it, everybody's like, how do you do this? It literally is my full-time job. Not really. But it feels like that. For, like, when I'm really in it, I'm not, like, reading for pleasure. I'm not watching TV. It's what I'm doing with my extra hours in the day. This one wasn't as bad because it's, like, a known road trip. So most people will tell you, like, you can either fly into Vegas, go to Salt Lake, fly in and out of Vegas, or fly in and out of Salt Lake. So that's what we did. So there was lots of, like, road trip itineraries. The one I did in the Pacific Northwest was harder because there wasn't the exact trip I wanted to take. So I kind of had to plan it myself. Our trip in Europe is hard, but it's also easier because you just do what Rick Steves tells you to do, which is my approach to Europe. Just pick by the Rick Steves book and just tell it, do what he tells you to do. But for this one, it wasn't that bad. I, it, again, mainly because I once I get the loose itinerary of where we'll be day by day, then I just crowdsource and y'all send me prolific lists of restaurants. And especially if a restaurant comes up over and over and over and over again, that's the one we go to. And that worked out beautifully. I will say this about Utah. I'm going to be honest. I did not expect to have good food. Like, I didn't expect to have bad food, but I didn't expect to have, like, food experiences. But we did. I will say that Utah's food experiences 
is a credit to immigration in this country. Word. Because one of the greatest things we had, or probably the best thing that I remember, something that I would literally fly back for just to, yeah, to eat again, true. was at Ruska's Kalaches, which is in, one of, there's one in Provo. I think there's a couple more. Yeah. And they had a carnitas, carnitas colache, and it was the most Ugh. delicious thing. <laughs> so mouth. why did we only buy one? We should have waited in line and got from, another one. Those are from the Czech Republic, and we had curry uh, pizza. We had curry pizza. We had amazing Mexican. We, yeah, we had Mexican. We had um, you know, it sounds rope, but good Italian. Um, you know, oh. so it was it was really um, a tour of of Utah's. It was so good. Cuisine and it was very good. Yeah, and we also went to a few just American, all American hamburger diners. They were good. We, mm-hmm. we had um, we had American Indian food the first night we were there. Black Sheep Cafe, right? Yep. Wasn't that what that was? Yep. And, um, so we had a, a really good food tour. It was I so good, and it just is the most beautiful state. Like I had, you know, I've been out west. My dad lives in California, and when I first started visiting him, when I was really literally lived in Arizona, so it's not like I haven't been out west before. But I had not been to—we've been to the Grand Canyon when the boys were little, just sort of for a quick trip. But I had not been to, you know, Utah before and seen these—I mean, just rock, they're rocks. I do feel like a geologist now. I feel like I can tell you all about the different layers and how the arches are formed. Mad shout-out to the listener who suggested Gypsy Guide. Oh, my God, it was so awesome. It's like it picks up your GPS and it plays along with wherever you're driving in the park and it tells you. He gave us an acronym, Oh oh, What Mighty Rocks We Have Seen. That tells you all the layers. I think it's Oh What Mighty Cliffs We, we Have known. We Know Now. We Know Now. See, whatever. But to tell you all the like white stone and what was the M1? I like that word. You've got me. I don't Dang remember. it. We were, we were really, we were experts. We were geological was, experts for Until we flew home and slept and then, in our own houses. Um, yes, but that's G-Y-P-S-Y. So like GPS with two Ys between one and the G. Yeah, it was really P-M. great. It was a really great tool. We'll be using that in all our parks. Our kids did not love it, but that's okay because they don't pay for anything. So they don't get a boat. Yeah, I think it was really just the preteen who decided he didn't like it. And then and the other two picked poisoned up on the well poisoned the well. Poisoned the well, so true. Would like it. But he was very interesting. It's it's based on your GPS. So as you drive. It's so cool. And you hit a GPS point, he starts talking about whatever it is you're looking at or getting ready to look at. And it really did take a lot of the load off of mm-hmm. figuring out, well, what do we need to go see in this park? We didn't have it until we got to Arches already. One of the listeners um, advised us about it. And it was Kathleen. Kathleen is the one who told us about it. Yeah, and it was great. It was really super, super duper helpful because we just, at that point, like Sarah said, we just kind of did what he told kind of like Rick Steves in Europe. We just did what this guy told mm-hmm, us to do. Mm-hmm. He gives he gave tips on parking in Zion. He gave tips on what to do in Bryce first, you know, what hikes to do in Bryce. And I had I do, like I said, I do kind of the what hikes are we going to do. Um, my process is... I look at the I look at guidebooks. I try to see you know what's going to fit in our our physical ability level, which is usually moderate to moderate strenuous. Um, we don't do anything crazy. We uh, do not do Angels Landing, but we try not to just do just because you don't basic. like heights, <laughs> right? So the other thing that to mention that, that you mentioned Angels Landing is in two of the parks there are some reservation now. systems. So Arches National Park. Um, has a reservation system. If you want to get in the park on a certain day, you have to have a reservation. So We were like probably the first reservation. We had it at 6 a.m. the first day they did it. We were among the first reservations for sure. We had a reservation for April 3rd, and it was like a 6 a.m. reservation, and I think we were among probably the first 15. And you have an hour to enter the park. Once you've done that, once you've entered the park Hot in tip. that hour, 
you can come and go from the park anytime you want to. So, so you can go you, back to bed and then come back. If you get a six, a, you know, if you get a six a.m. reservation, you can send an unlucky soul to go check you guys in, come back and sleep for a couple hours, and then you guys can re-enter the park if that's what you want to do. We just went on and did the Delicate Arch Trail, and then actually we didn't re-enter the park after that. We had done a half a day before. And so then we went on to Canyonlands after we finished Delicate Arc. We had a fantastic time. I would highly recommend this yep. trip. And the other reservation system is for Angel's Landing. Um, Angel's Landing is not for the faint of heart. It is a very high, very steep. You have to like um, hold on to a on chain. both sides near the end, it is a basically a, a drop off. And there is a <laughs> chain system, which is basically like a, a handrail, so to speak. Sarah will tell you I am not Never. good with heights. He I'm, didn't I'm, even climb over the big rocks to get to Delicate Art. don't love heights, and I really don't love heights when kids are involved because I just, they're all over the place and they're precious cargo. So I didn't go over to Delicate Arch, and I would not try Angel's Landing. But if you are inclined to do so, you are required to have a reservation now to try Angel's Landing because it was getting so crowded, they were worried more people were going to get injured. Um, and there have been people who have fallen uh, to their demise there. So lovely. I was going to say, what a note to end on. What the heck? <laughs> but do go to the Utah parks. It is incredible country. It's hard. I mean, coming from the southeast, living my entire life in the southeast and mid-Atlantic, it's just They're so big. The rocks are so big, you guys. The geography out there is unbelievable. And Makes you feel so wide small. wide open country and the ranges and the buffalo. And the, it just doesn't seem like it should all be in one big country. But it is. Yeah. We loved it. We loved it. What, what's going to be our next one, we think? We talked about doing Texas, doing Big Bend. And Guadalupe, that that little, little thing, but piece. that's a, a lot of that's still a lot of driving. Mm-hmm. We'll probably hit some of the ones that are over closer to us. You want to do Yosemite? That's not closer to us, but like Cuyahoga will be probably next. That's Maybe an easy Isle one. Royale, Voyagers in Minnesota. We still haven't done uh, Congaree in South Carolina. So there's a few we could probably still pick up. The one I want to we- hear from any of y'all who've done all the ones in Alaska. I need to hear from somebody that's done all the ones in Alaska. How do you even do it? Do you just are you is 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 one of you a pilot, <laughs> and so you just rent a boat plane and fly around for a couple no. weeks? Because we that's what we talked about. We we're like, well, who do we know that's a pilot? <laughs> so we can just really, take them with us. That's, that's what we'll do. You know, that seems reasonable and, and likely within our price range. <laughs> uh, not really. Oh. Well, I do love I love traveling with you, hun. It's fun. Well, you make it easy. Thanks. You, make it, you plan so well. Thanks for coming on Pantsy Politics. Sure thing. I, I know that I didn't come anywhere close to filling Beth's shoes here, but uh, hopefully you all enjoyed. We will be back together, me and Beth, next week. So exciting. So we hope that you guys will tune in. And until then, have the best weekend available to you. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Linda Daniel. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creeps. Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. Emily Neasley. The Hessians. Tawny Peterson. Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Katie Steigers. Karen True. Annika Uveline. Nick and Elisa Valelli. Catherine Vollmer. Amy Whited. Jeff Davis. Melinda Johnston. Ashley Thompson. Michelle Wood. Joshua Allen. Morgan McHugh. 
Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller. As you have just heard, I'm here with my husband. Cookie, stop. You can't pet her. She I'm wants sorry. to be in here, but you can't pet her. Sorry. Because you'll hear her licking. This, this is getting weird. Okay, sorry. <laughs> you can't laugh. Be quiet.